what I'd like to start with is something that I find is really rather fundamental to this whole thing as a person who I believe is probably the least qualified person to be hosting a panel like this is just trying to find common vocabulary and terminology. So I grew up in an era when it was gay, um, queer, all these kinds of terms. Now it's LGBTQ, but is it LGBTQ plus? Is it LGBTQIA? Is it what's a, a common vernacular that we can all agree to use during this discussion? Hmm. We're starting there. <laughs> is that a, a, a difficult topic? I thought that was an easy start. I mean, there is a lot of debate even in the community itself, but I'm personally happy with LGBTQ plus. I think it's it's, a, it's such a good question. Normally, one would just skip that question. During a conversation like that, you would always end up with it, I think, because it's a lot of confusion. And I don't know if we will find a common ground and common understanding even about the differences between the different words and expressions. Nowadays, I use queer a lot because of the danger of excluding someone. You know, that's a very difficult part of doing this work, this queer rights work, because people are very sensitive to being excluded. So LGBT plus works for me, <laughs> but that's a lot connected to sexuality, sexual identity, gender identity. But when we go to, to use queer, it includes a lot more actually than just sexual identity. Like, you could define yourself as queer even though you have a straight sexuality. So, and then you have young people who don't identify with gay or LGBT, and then you have older people, generations, who often tells me that they don't identify with queer because that's too young in a way. So, I don't know. It's a very interesting <laughs> question. I don't know if we will find an answer. So, I would accept a, a mix between <laughs> all of that. I totally thought I was starting with something easy, but okay. <laughs> Emmanuel, anything, any input on that? Well, I, I cannot really speak for the youth in the community because I'm also a, f a bit too old to be involved in all these topics, the importance of these topics. For myself, I envisage being gay as rather the, the queer thing that Freddie just described, but in the first meaning of the word, meaning just unusual what i really speak for myself and this queerness is for me a, a kind of freedom that i fight for not another prison or another box another restrictive mindset or in category of people class categorization or something this is very personal i totally respect and understand that the sensitivity about all this identity thing but it i never felt like that i never it, it was never a question for myself but i like this terms of queer and and the the norwegian shive uh, i i really liked it also because it's just like not like normal a bit it means wonky sorry it, it means wonky like the opposite of straight yeah exactly like you're not straight it can be anything but that kind of or it's yeah, it's kind of like yeah, you said that it's different. Yeah, I, I think that that works well, and I think that as Frederick just said, it 
we can relate that to the sexual behavior or the gender or anything else or art. But I think it's from for myself, I always wanted to stand as unusual, not so much towards society, but before all to myself. Mm. I wanted to be, and I still want, to always surprise my own self. I want to come out of my own boxes and my own category that I can put myself on. I want to always evolve and and break my own habits. And I think the art is really much part of it. And I think the fact to take part to all the a lot of artistic or um, creative social events is important for me. May they be part of the LGBTQ whatever expression or others. I think that's why you guys asked me to speak today because of this standpoint. All right. Well, speaking of standpoints, something that we should probably go back to is sort of who you all are and what your sort of um, experiences, be it in the LGBTQ plus slash queer community, uh, be the, either either personally, but also professionally, specifically sort of arts professionally would be great. Um, and of course, how to pronounce your names, because I'm horrible with pronouncing names. So could, let's just go around, give a little bit of background on everybody. So Katya, why don't you start? Okay. Actually, you pronounce my name quite well. I'm Katya Fjell. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm cis, and I'm from Norway. I'm pansexual, and I'm also demisexual, which is something that's kind of a new hot topic. And it, it's basically part of the ace community, that you don't feel any sexual attraction unless you have emotional feelings towards someone first. Um, I recently finished my MA in, uh, in art history at Nottingham University in the UK, finished last year. And since that, I've been volunteering at Pride Art in Oslo, doing various things. Like, at the moment, we have a very interesting summer project going on, where we are inviting queers all over the country to decorate a postcard and send it in to us, presenting their queer perspective of the pandemic. And we're going to exhibit that in our exhibition this fall. So that's exciting. I was just thinking about more expressions to you know to to bring to the discussion when Katya spoke and presented herself and I was thinking does Matt understand all these expressions and uh, yeah like yes cis person I, I am shaking my head no <laughs> <laughs> me neither <laughs> so I'm like I could say I'm a cis non-binary you know the last years we have included a lot of more boxes like Manuel talked about so what I wanted to say is that I, re I was really touched by what Emmanuel said about this continuous breaking boundaries and boxes and continually evolve. Because when you asked that question, I was just thinking, do I really know how to present myself when it comes to identity factors? Because the way I used to present myself 10 years ago, I'm 40 years now, old now, or I will be in a couple of months, it's, it's, it has changed. So now I will be, I look like a cis man. That means I identify with the gender I was born with, a man. But I used to be more androgynous or even trans before. 
but it, it has changed. So back to the presentation. I am an artist. I haven't studied any art ever. So I'm an autodidact. But I've been working with queer art promotion for 15 years. And I'm leading an organization in Norway called Pride Art, former queer artists. That is uh, like a national organization for uh, promotion of queer art and queer artists. I'm also working as a psychotherapist, focusing on existential and creative processes. And I, I work a lot with queer people, whatever that means. A lot of people with transsexual or gay, lesbian, bisexual uh, identities. Yeah, I don't know what else to say. I, I also want to say that I am quite queer in the way I uh, live my life. I live in the middle of a forest, three kilometers away from the first neighbor, in a little house, doing a lot of gardening. That's my dream. Yeah? I, I have a dream that I, I want to live somewhere where I can walk out on my front porch naked and see nobody. That's what it's all about. <laughs> and lately I discovered I'm a curator. I never defined myself as a curator, but after making exhibitions for so many years and the last, I don't know, seven, eight years, I've been leading this big exhibition that now entails 600 pieces of art, 140 artists. I got a letter some time ago from the National Museum and they wrote to me as a, titled me a curator. So that's very interesting, I think. So you have been dubbed a curator. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of, <laughs> I said I, I don't have any formal education in art and that's where most of my perspective comes from. You will hear that during our talk. To sum up, I'm a photographer, a designer, what I do for the moment is including photography in interior design as art. It's like some kind of art in design. or So you could say that I'm not a graphic artist, but a photographist or something like that doesn't really exist. I don't know. Anyway, I can't draw and I'm not a computer guy, but I'm a photographer. And we do things that we can print or use to make various objects in interior. I used to work with fashion. I used to work with different kind of photography, animal photography, but now I'm into that. My style would be maybe surrealist, but I don't really know what surrealism is today. It still lives, but it's hard to define. So that's maybe that's why it's interesting. And I found that working with applied arts is very important to me because producing objects or items that pass on the spirit that I work with or that I try to transmit is something that is important more than having a nice picture that can be published or hang on the wall. I tend to say that a two-dimensional picture that you hang on your wall to make it nice. It was a photography of the 20th century. But now that we can, we have all those tools to, not really printing, but I mean, print everywhere on many kind of materials and transparencies and everything. We can think photography differently and make, make people 
be part of it or make the image be part of their 3D life. I will also say, tell it quite often, but there, there was an exhibition where uh, I was showing a variety of uh, possibility of printing photography. And I had one on a transparent piece of, well, like curtain of, of plastic. And it was at the entrance of the exhibition. And I was inside and I saw the public, every person coming in, which from my point of view, they were just coming out of one of my picture. Mm. They were popping out. And that was amazing. It's just like the, the normality was on the other side of the mirror and was popping out. It was great. It was a great feeling. So this, this I think the applied arts uh, allow something, another dimension or other dimensions to it. And also it involves working in team. And that is very important because there is already a passing of a connection and a transmission within the making of the thing. Just like fashion photography, you work with, in a team with the models, the stylist, the, the, the hairstylist, the makeup artist and everyone. But making applied art, you also have, you come with an idea, you have people producing it, you have people art directing, selling, there are things. And then it is a different process or a different relationship to art than just creating your own art in your own atelier and then trying to sell it or exhibit it. That's my way. Yeah, that, that's me. You just defined me. Ah, okay. Wow. But I'm also a photographer. Right. Great. I'm interested. I want to go back to the topic about like definitions because now I'm going to say this right up front. I'm going to come off looking like a complete idiot and possibly put my foot in my mouth numerous times over the course of this conversation. So please be kind. So <laughs> when it comes to definitions... <laughs> One of the stupid ones that I I, I don't know wh where it started or, or why it even started is what uh, what Frederick brought up with like cis and and all the different things like this like even just all these new things with pro the need for pronouns to be added into things. Where did this come from? Is this did this sort of come out of the queer LGBTQ community? Hmm. Anybody? <laughs> Maybe gender studies, maybe maybe the use of the apps and internet. People needed to describe themselves to find connections with other people. I don't know. I don't know when it you know historically started. I don't have a timetable or like a, a timeline in front of me to explain it. But like with Stonewall, there was actually black trans women who were starting the whole riot but we all sort of know it as just the gays rights movement even though it was already from the very beginning also revolving around gender and gender representation and of course in the 1990s we started to discuss more gender identity politics and in philosophy with judith butler for instance brought very revolutionary ideas on how gender conformativity corresponds with um, society. 
But I don't know when that sort of became a thing, but I think it's always been something particularly that academia wants to discuss. Yeah, I'm sure academia has a lot to do with coming up with the different words. By the way, I'm a professor and I, I work in academia, so be cautious <laughs> on you know, saying it's academia's fault. Yeah. I it's fine. I'm totally it. kidding. We will t I will take it for on the chin for academia. Let's go ahead. I have a master's in health psychology. So I worked and I've been studying religious and spiritual psychology, which is very complex. And academia doesn't want really to have anything to do with spirituality when it comes to psychology. So finding words there is very difficult. <laughs> like soul. No, actually, when I started in the gay right movement 16 years ago, we didn't have all these words. It was gay and lesbian and trans persons. And then, you know, from one month to another, you have to change your language. For example, I said tranny the other day in my project group, and I got shit-faced. You know, I, she was so angry with me because she thought if, if Frederick is going to say tranny, in, in public, the project will be dead, you know. It will be all of the newspaper, how, how I am a transphobic person. And, and now that is very bad. That's even worse than, than racist at the moment. I think that's very interesting that you say that because, I mean, I'm just wanting, I just want to go back to that whole older generation versus the young generation. For me, that I don't even want to say it because it's kind of like saying the N-word. Mm. But hearing, hearing the T-word, to me, that is instantly transphobic it's something you don't say if you want to be a trans ally or a queer ally it's it's like the n-word like i said it's a no-go yeah <laughs> it is when i thought about it you know and uh, i connected to how that was only destructive to use that word but for me personally i've used it with my friends forever because you know we, we didn't define ourselves as trans persons or transgender persons at that time, we were just uh, full, like they say in French, that you're, uh, how do you say that in English? Feminine. Sissy. 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 And we would say faggot to each other or, or yeah. you know, and all the worst words. Bitch. And I read, just read, yeah, I just read this book, Man Enough to be a Woman by Jane County, talking about what Katya just mentioned, the, the, the riots from Stonewall and the movement, gay rights movement how it started in the 80s, got really serious in, in New York, London, Berlin. And she said that nobody talked about transgender at that time. It was drag queens. Mm. Mm. So when I came into the movement, I just, I, I thought everything was about being a drag queen. And then I learned that you have trans persons who are trans and heterosexual. And there is a big difference between those two identities and Norway is a very small country uh, we have uh, four million people here Oslo we have 500,000 inhabitants in that little country now we have so many organizations making out the, 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 the umbrella that we call it of gay right movements now we have since only two or three years we've got small organizations like organization for Sami queer people, yeah, Christians th that come from kind of orthodox <laughs> Christian society who went out, you know, and who were focusing up on 
playing more music that they couldn't play where they used to be you know, in their community. Then we have a Muslim queer organization, which went out of the, the Shaivarden. How can I define that, Katya? Queer world. It's, it's basically an organization for minorities. Yeah. Because obviously, and I just want to touch upon that a little bit just very quickly, because I think it relates to all, all these terms. I think that we can find terms sometimes a bit difficult, like we, we spoke about in the beginning. But I also think that it's really important for people who might intersect with other communities mm. or mm. that we don't just talk about the first letters of the LGBT plus community anymore you know we have found other identities that are more fluid or you know we have to include these experiences that are just as valid as the gay experience and i think that having organizations that work with minorities as well sort of touch upon this idea that when we speak about queer people we are not just talking about the default mode which tends to be white predominantly male homosexuals that we're talking about which I mean I don't want to like bash this panel already but I mean I'm the only female representative here and we're all white so you know we're already kind of getting there now that we need to include more voices in the queer community so that's why terms can also be quite helpful and I personally also found that helpful when I was discovering my own identity because mm. I had never heard about demisexuality before last year during lockdown and I was just reading about queer stuff and I read about the term and I was like oh I can identify with that so I think that it can be very helpful for people but yeah of course they can also you know it, it's, it's true that we don't want to be put in too many boxes and that can also defeat the purpose because normativity will find it difficult if you have to sort of learn all the new terms and what words not to say and what, what words to say and the pronouns and I can understand how that is very difficult but I think that's the the nature of queerness is that it's not boxes it's fluid so it will become you know more terms will arrive because we will discover new sides of queerness. I've got a question within, within that because I mean that's, that's a great kernel of a conversation okay so frederick you just talked about how there are all these smaller groups so there's mm. the, the christian queer community there's the muslim lgbtq group kind of things like i as a cis man am i wait cis white american man i should give all my 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 sort of <laughs> categorizations on this that i feel like okay so this is my perspective on this i feel like the massive amount of subcategorization so a you've the lgbtq is defining itself as separate from something don't know what the uh, non thing they're separating from but they're separate from something because they've defined themselves self-defined themselves then within that there's even more self-segregating self-categorization self-defining that sort of makes it even more separate and i personally feel like that is somewhat detrimental specifically in the arts because we're already a niche group of people in the in the creative industries and then to self-segregate within that small community i personally feel like is not helpful to 
bringing us all together in some way and being supportive and being sort of together or centralized. I don't know how to explain it clearly, but I'm wondering whether that those subcategorizations and those separations are beneficial or detrimental. Wow. Is that, is that a really big thing, Frederick? Is is this too big? <laughs> it, it blows my mind because I, I want to try to, to find answers to it, you know, and, and I, 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 f- I find an answer and then at the other side of my head, it breaks down because it's all, it's all fluid, like Katya says. And then part of my brain wants it to be definable, but then I just get lost. It's, it's a jungle and it's nighttime. <laughs> I would say there is the both sides that are really interesting that, that you mentioned that is kind of puzzling is the self-segregation that creates minorities within the minorities and that makes life very complicated, actually. <laughs> but it's there's also the, the necessity of protected spaces of expression, especially in art. And that makes sense then. So it's, it's just like a two-ways process. There are periods or there are situations, or maybe, as Frederick said, maybe time in a lifetime, when more protection is needed to allow some sensitivity, some creativity, some aspects of identity to express itself. And then there should be, some at some point, a counterbalance with a reopening and a relink with something more fluid because one feels more secure with oneself as being the one we want. For me, in my own story, as, as I mentioned before, I never had this questioning, the, the, the identity question. And I feel I'm so privileged personally and also socially. I, I mean, uh, I never had a, a difficult family context, social context, political context in my country. I'm not living in a dictatorship. I mean, I could just be the one I wanted and it was easy. But I understand that for many other people, and I respect and I, I can see the point that for many other people, they need secure, more secure space to process that thing. Well, that's what it comes to is like... It, it, to me, like it could be many different things. Like, is it a sense of sort of finding your own tribe, like trying to find like minds and finding you know common ground? Is it a sense of protection? Is it a sense of empowerment? Like, what what is this in a sort of advancement in sort of what I consider like this self categorization that seems to be getting faster and more frequent these days than it ever was in the past. I mean, I wrote my master's on actually minority groups in queer art and performance art, particularly in the 1960s to 90s US, New York and Los Angeles. So I have some academic background. So I'm just going to bring in a term here by a lovely author called Jose Munoz. He has a very good book called Disidentification. And I think that term is very important here because basically what that means is identify with something that is sort of created by normative society but you twist it and create something of your own with it yeah freddie has a book i told him about it so (laughs) he bought it 
But I think that is extremely important for people who do intersect with other minority groups than just the queer community. Because as I said before, when we speak about queer experiences, we have this default mode that excludes other groups and they need these communities in order to protect themselves. For instance, Black queers need to protect themselves from the racism that happens in the queer community and females need to protect themselves from the sexism because we kind of treat these communities as separate when people actually experience them like crossover experiences. So I think it's very important for them to actually find minority groups within these minorities to find ways to cope with these other with this oppression that they still feel, even though they have found other groups that they do belong with. For instance, I can t- take the example of uh, an artist I, I wrote about, which is a drag queen based in um, Berlin. Her drag name is Vaginal Davis, which is a great name, by the way. <laughs> and it was a twist on Angela Davis, actually, the Black Panther activist. And... The reason why she chose that name was because she couldn't quite fit in with that whole black activist groups that happened in the 1960s and 70s because it was very male and heterosexual dominated and was very sad about black history, for instance, in particularly in America, is that there was a lot of homophobia and sexism within it because they didn't think that they could afford to think of other kinds of oppressions because they thought that the black rights movement was their first priority. So it led to other groups within that community to be excluded and therefore they would have to find other minority groups that they could identify with and sort of fight that battle as well because they would be excluded otherwise. Uh, So she did very interesting things with drag and Whiteface as well, where she was appropriating the white supremacist. It's a very great performance she did, which is called The Whites to be Angry. And she was like being really, really butch and painted her face white to sort of appropriate this dangerous fantasy of whiteness being taken over by black people. And she used her black body and the white appropriation to sort of convey that experience and that anxiety and use it as activism. So I think that 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 is an image of how important performance art is and also how important different minority groups can be because it's not just finding a way to identify, but it's actually a way to cope. It's a surviving mechanism as well to be able to cope with society because you don't just belong with one minority necessarily you belong with others and you can be excluded from both of them so you need to sort of carve your own space and that is what Munoz is talking a lot about in his book as well is how these minorities that intersect need to use this sort of middle ground place that they this sort of borderland that they exist in to carve their own identity in there and their own space you'll you'll go on the side of positive yeah, yeah, I think it's very, I think it's not just positive, but I think it is necessary. Excellent. I would like to add that it is very important, just as you described, socially, social identity, but it is difficult to understand this process when we differentiate the processes of the self 
and then Frederick can can relate to that later, maybe. And the pro- the social processes. Well, I'm I'm also an anthropology researcher on ritual, and the, the complexity or the plurality of the self is is very much studied now. And they call it, I don't know, maybe multi-layeredness or plurality. And I think trying to belong or, or identify is like an exploration of uh, various aspects of oneself. And of course, we're just a complexity of all that mixed. We can be both black and queer and artist or not or whatever. So all this is what we are and it becomes difficult when we restrict and try to fit in only one small minority and that's when it's it becomes complicated to live as an individual and socially it's the same it's like when we f- try to fit in only in the say queer category then it's difficult to be something else to be uh, i don't know a wine lover or something like that mm-hmm. yeah I just got an image while we were talking about, you know, the Big Bang or also making a salad and differentiate, differentiate. You want it to be really mixed up to have, and you turn like a soup, you know, you turn and turn. And in, in the end, there's a theory saying that it will go back to be differentiated again, like the tomatoes over there and the cucumbers there. And like with the Big Bang, one day, the expansion will stop and then it will all go back again to one big mass. And I'm wondering if if this movement of differentiating and fragmentating the queer community into all these different categories, that today it is very important because we are in a process in society where, where we try to actually understand what sexuality and gender identity is about i think we just started exploring it the movement is so young so for me it's a movement that is is not really grown up yet it's not fully matured so we are we're trying to find new words to actually understand how do we validate a person how do we confirm a person's value in society. I don't think there is normality anymore, that it, it makes sense anymore. There was one thing that I, I observed not long ago, is that heterosexual cis persons start to to talk now about feeling excluded. Because everybody talks about pride, about you know all the minorities, and then they feel devaluated that being normal or whatever we confirm is has no value anymore so they wanted to make their own parade they silly to say they but some people talk about it that's for me new so i don't know maybe it will turn one day so we will come back together and gain force i will admit that like given these days i have felt like i'm i like the the dominant male white thing in the arts world is past, like <clears> by far, like it's totally <laughs> over. And, and and I'm like, but I'm still working. <laughs> like, I, I I I'm I'm the, I should have been like I should have gotten better earlier because I missed my window. Like I'm out. 
<laughs> but it's fine. It happens. Yeah, it, it'll. it's not a big deal. It just means I have to make better work because the work has to be good. When you start, when you talk about work, Matt, it's th- this big question. Are we talking about queer art or queer artists or queering art, queering as a verb? You know, it's, it's, it's such a big topic. So I was actually going to ask about that. I have a note here that sort of asks the question of like, there, like when I walk into a museum or a gallery or to a performance or whatever kind of interaction it is with arts, like I don't like. There's a difference. There's art where the subject matter is about LGBTQ or queer topics, and that's that's sort of a, a topical, conceptual kind of thing, versus art made by somebody who is LGBTQ or queer but it's just the, the the concept or the intention of the work has nothing to do with their personal identity. Right. And that's a huge difference that I don't think a lot of people really think about. I think it's interesting that you actually mentioned when you go into museums and galleries, because the way that they usually tend to promote their exhibition is by saying that something is queer to make the spectator aware of their queerness when they go into it whereas when you just go to a regular exhibition and if they don't mention it you would most likely i'm not saying you or anyone here but society would default to just assuming that that person was straight it's an interesting marketing or branding thing that has become a a sort of a, a badge of honor again like a lot of funding when it comes to like institutions and places like this a lot of it is based around like oh you need to be sure to include whatever minorities it could be women it could be you know gen it could be sex religion location sami whatever all these different kinds of things there's so many different issues with this women are not a minority they are treated like a minority they are not a minority please thank you <laughs> <sighs> I, I knew this was going to happen. I, I told you I was going to stick my foot in my mouth, and I have. So, there. And and by the way, Katya, you are welcome to smack down the demographic makeup of this panel as much as you want. It's fine. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, whilst we're on the smackdown thingy, I mean, you say that you had your window. You still have your window. We are still... Women still need to work our asses so much harder to be accepted within the cultural community i mean we just had a female winner at Cannes this year i i I know i i was being facetious which unfortunately doesn't always come across i'm sorry (laughs) no that's all right maybe because in the in the pride art expo very much representing this kind of different approach to art i'm part of the exhibition for i don't know how many years now but my art is definitely not gay. I mean, in the topic, it's just I exhibit the same things, the same items, the same pieces, art pieces here that I would exhibit in other places. But I hope they're as queer as they can be. I mean, in the unusual or different sense of the of the meaning of the word. I think it's important that there is the, a, a space for, for for this type of art, even as a minority, <laughs> in a space that is more 
dedicated to showing something that is more typically uh, gay as a topic. So it, it also just shows that some gays, they don't need or want to do gay art, but it's, it's still gay art because it's made by gay. It's, it's just part of it, just uh, to be present. I want to push back on that a little bit. Is art made by a, let's take your gay comment. So like based on, is art made by a gay person, gay art? I don't think so. So that's why I'm, I'm just sort of Can you say something about that too, to trigger us a little bit? You know, what, what? Have I not I triggered can, you enough? <laughs> but why is it not? I seem to have triggered Katya. So like, I, I just no, got two more to go. <laughs> You know, like, I mean, I grew up in the era of like Keith Haring and that's what, and that it was a very prominent sort of gay movement, gay arts, you know, uh, Maplethorpe, like these people were sort of my, Mm. you know, my leaders kind of thing into the arts. And like, to me, the LGBTQ plus community is the creative community. Like to me that I don't, to a certain extent, I almost don't feel like they're a minority in the creative community. They're probably the majority of the creative community, but yet they're mm-hmm. underrepresented in almost every facet of it, which is fascinating yeah. to me. Cause like I used to do fashion photography, every, almost every stylist, hair and makeup person and everything, they were all LGBTQ. Like I was often the only heterosexual person on a set any given time. So I don't, it's one of those weird things of like, you're expressed as though you're a minority, but you're really a majority within the creative industries, in my opinion. No, I think you might be right. I mean, I don't have any numbers, so I don't know, but it is, <laughs> but it is. I have no facts to back that up other than personal experiences. No, but, but I can relate to that personal experience, you know, going to art school and all of that stuff. But I think, like you said, we are very much underrepresented, even though we are a majority within that group. And I think that is interesting because that kind of shows how society has held on to this heteronormativity for so long. And you can see that in art history, of course, like how when you look at the canon, we still discuss Picasso and Gogart. I mean, some of them are maybe revised a little bit now with racism and stuff, but, you know, we still look at these old masters and we call them these masters the vast majority of them are still male. Well, okay, art history. Yeah, art history is a whole different thing because like, I believe whether it's race, gender, uh, sexuality, any of the different things that are LGBTQ+, plus, they, I believe they've always been there, but because society somehow squashed them or turned them down or told them they couldn't do, I mean, you know, authors, female authors couldn't even publish a book until like 1910, 1920, just because they were women, you know, kind of thing. So like, I think they've always been there. Unfortunately, as with everything else, uh, you know, art history is written by the victors. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, I actually just borrowed uh, Linda Nocklin's Why Are There No Great Female Artists? I read it before, but I want to reread it. And I don't want to sidetrack too much here, but I just want to wanted to point out how when we see in art history, that kind of, it, it corresponds with the way that history itself has worked out throughout the centuries, that heteronormativity and patriarchal heteronormativity 
is so important to institutions like educational institutions and museums and galleries. And we still teach this to people. I mean, now, of course, we have subcategories within these modules that look at black art, female art, queer art. But there's that label there now that kind of has to attract certain interests. Whereas when I, for instance, talk about my degree, people still think that I just studied Picasso because that's what people think when they think about art and art history. And it's very male, heterosexual, patriarchal dominated. So I don't think there's any surprise at all that even though queer people might be a majority within the creative industry, they're still so underrepresented. When you say underrepresented, I'm thinking of this exhibition we had in, in the south of Norway a couple of years ago, Pride exhibition. We tried to find local artists, but it was impossible to get local artists from the south, which we call the, the Bible Belt. It's very dominated by mm. small Christian <laughs> yeah. groups. And we actually had to take parts of our exhibition in Oslo and bring down there. And when we asked the artists, why, why don't you want to show your art in a pride exhibition? And they said, if I say publicly that I'm a queer artist or that I'm, I'm gay or whatever, and, or even worse, that, that my art is gay, nobody will buy my art anymore. And even more, they, they would risk, or they thought they would risk violence or that they would lose their job or lose friends or whatever. But, most important, I think, is that they imagine that people wouldn't buy their art. I think this is quite an important part of the discussion, because making art is also a, a profession where you want to earn to life. And when Katya says that queer artists are underrepresented, I think financially it can be proven that it's more difficult to sell queer art and that we see statistically queer people are overrepresented when it comes to psychological unhealth or disease so what i imagine and also when it comes to social status so i imagine that queer people would have more difficulty finding their place in in the art world to reply that, I would say that it also exists re reverse within the community because me, like exhibiting at Pride Art for many years, I must be maybe one of the only one who, with kind of a high range piece of art that sells somewhere else, didn't sell anything at Pride Art because even though they find it great, it's not part of the community. So you have it reversed too. Hmm. That's interesting. I don't feel so frustrated about it. But, I mean, it's interesting to find the same situation. Yeah, like Matt said, yeah. it's, it's fashion now. Gay, be, being queer, or, you know, it's something you, you would like to, to name your art or yourself because then it's easy to, to get people to be interested. Like now in Norway, next year, we have an, an official year of queer art and culture named by the National Museum and, and the Cultural Minister. So I talk with a lot of these galleries and museums wanting to do projects in 2022. And uh, my impression now is that 
most institutions, they are afraid of not coming up with something really cool and queer, whatever that may be, because if, if they're not, they are outside. You know, they, are, they become a minority and they're not taken seriously anymore. So, yeah. I'm just processing what Frederick just said, because, I mean, Me we've, too. Been talking, <laughs> we've been talking a lot about the queer year that's going on this year. And I think, though, that even though that kind of shows that it's trendy to be queer or that it's fashionable, I think, yes, but, and there's a but in here, because they don't want to collaborate with Pride Art, even though Pride Art has existed for many, many years until it's relevant for them and their brand. So I don't think that queerness is so fashionable because you don't really want to be queer and you don't really want to go outside of normativity in that way because it's still going to be an institution that is still very predominantly consisting of straight people and normative people, whatever that means. <laughs> but, you know, they, they just want to put that brand on them so that they can seem more inclusive mm. but it's actually more excluding than anything and i just want to send my quote um, angela davis here because i think it's such a an important quote in this scenario because she says something like we don't want to be put into a society that is oppressing us or, or like we don't want to fit in with a heteropatriarchal, sexist, racist, homophobic, transphobic, you name it, society. And I think that is what these institutions are kind of doing now. They want us to conform to these old-fashioned values, but they want to take our brand at the same time so that they can have their cake and eat it too. Oh, it's so great. Sorry. No, that's great. I mean, okay, the I actually had a question along this line, which is so LGBTQ plus and all this stuff is sort of trendy and like you said in Norway right now it's very fashionable and all this kind of stuff. I guess my my long-term question on this whole scenario is what would be like the utopian outcome of all of this constant change and flux and stuff. So like Right, you know, traditionally, like in the, shouldn't say traditional. Okay, in the past, it was white male dominated. Now it's probably realistically not, but still, it's still thought sort of thought to be. And of course, the history books still sort of talk about that. So, like in the future, like what do we want out of this? Do we want is is there still is it going to be still like a there'll be a LGBTQ art history versus other art history or should it, should it all become one big art history with no lgbtq definition or subsection in there like what's the desired future it's interesting that you asked what the future should be and your question revolves what should the history say because mm -hmm. that, those are kind of conflicting things but i'm, I'm going to try to answer the question and I'm, i can only speak for myself here i want to point that out <laughs> I think that it is very important to hang on to history and, you know, not try to conceal what happened. We need to still have these terms like queer art to, maybe not in a ut utopian world, but like for the present, that is still important so that people can distinguish us. But at the same time, it is, it seems difficult as well because 
that kind of indicates that we are an other that is not sort of the default that we are it's kind of it's kind of still carrying on this narrative that we are an other from normative society so i guess in an utopian world we would be able to have the same common ground maybe as others that that you know we would have the same opportunities as normative people does that make sense it does, but that sort of brings up a bigger question, which is like, okay, so is this also part of the legality and the rights and all this other kind of stuff that are still issues also? So like, you know, legally, gay couples in lots of countries still don't have like uh, spousal rights and, mm-hmm. um, you know, these kind of like even rights to insurance and like in America, a gay couple, they don't have rights to the other person's insurance policy because they're not like legally married under whatever laws. But is is the, is the general acceptance in like legal terms and sort of rights terms also part of this conversation or am I just expanding too far on this? No, I think it goes hand in hand. I think when you talk about minorities, you know, civil rights is a big topic in that because there are still countries and regions where people are very much oppressed, even in Norway, as Frederick explained, like particularly in the South, it's still, you know, that's the area in Norway that is the most homophobic and where it's the most difficult place to be queer, which is, you know, bizarre because when you think about Norway, you usually think that everything's fine here because you hear about other places like Poland and Hungary but you know that doesn't mean that it couldn't happen in a place like this as well so obviously when we fight for a queer space a queer art space or whatever we that that is part of that civil rights fight as well that we want to be we don't want other people to define us or we don't want to be put into a gallery space where people can dictate what we are or who we are or what queerness is or should look like or someone can censor and curate what it should be. But we want to be able to create that for ourselves just like we want to be able to create queerness in society, you know, who are queer people in general and how they live their lives. We don't want people to dictate that. You know, during the conversation, I mentioned the gay right movements many times, and so has Katya. And I think it should be mentioned that when we talk about queer art, gay art, LGBT plus art, it's relevant to talk about the activist part of the topic. Because very often when we talk about queer art, it has an activistic or what we call artivistic side. If that makes sense. So uh, before politics came into the picture, before we started fighting for our legal rights, the art was a place in society where people could express themselves, to express identity, to explore identity without pronouncing it openly, that this is about queerness or, or sexuality, deviant sexuality. Because through art, we can go under the political radar in a way. For example, in, in Russia, 
uh, it's forbidden to talk openly about gay rights, but it's not so difficult to, you know, they can celebrate pride in the same way as we can. But we have been invited several times to go to Russia to, to make queer art workshops, which works. So I think what is very important about defining part of the artistic scene as queer is that uh, through the art you, you, you can go deeper, you can touch closer, move people and challenge people. When we talk about politics, it's the fronts are harder, I think. It's more um, polarized, the discussion. And it's a lot about money, etc., which is tiring. But when it comes to art, you can go a lot further, deeper into the matter, which is very needed still. I think that when it comes to art, you can also, you can picture or express things that are different to or difficult to express with words or with chanting or with protests. You know, you can express emotions in a different way or identities or, you know, all of those things, but in a much more conceptual manner. So you can still have that strong activist voice in there, but it's conveyed differently. And I think particularly in places where you're not allowed to celebrate pride or where it can be potentially dangerous or scary to celebrate pride. Art can be a sort of safe place for you where you can still uh, express your queerness or your identity, but remain safe in a way. Safe space. That's a very important part of this. There's this uh, group of architects, queer architects in Oslo. They call themselves Safe Space Collective. So to me, it says that when you talk about queer art and queer culture, it's very significant to look at this as a way of making safe spaces for queer topics and queer people to meet and to to communicate and not feel threatened. I would like to come in here to express or to propose an alternative point of view on the artistic activity. That matters a lot to me as much as I respect and and understand and also share everything that has been said before. I've been not really a gay activist, but a social activist in several fields before that. From my experience, for a very, very long time, I practiced some kind of a spiritual, practical spiritual lifestyle with both influences from the Eastern and Western philosophy or approach, which makes me work as an artist or be an artist not to become myself in a more authentic way, become my more authentic self, or not in a self-development way, so not having to deal with my identity, but rather on the opposite, to dissolve myself or be like a sponge to various influences. And as I said before, evolve through this art process. And I think this is very much important in arts. And I think because of the accent on the identity process through art in the LGBTQ or queer community, which I also find important, this part is is a bit put between brackets and it's sometimes sad. So that's why I want to insist about it now. 
that also means that if I'm not looking for myself, the, the expression that I, that I often hear, not only in the queer community, but everywhere, is my art, I do this. It has no meaning for me. I'm not producing objects, piece of art. <laughs> and what I do is to, I try to express something of this evolution of myself or spiritual process or whatever through art that happens through art and the pieces that I can produce or produce in a group like if I would apply arts or exhibits or sell that people can buy rather than I sell them they are like the the, the transmitter of this creativity. They're not objects as they're finished, they're a piece of thing that you can show or sell back or or put on your on your fireplace or something like that. They're something that once they belong not to me anymore, but to someone else, they should convey the creativity. They they start living their own life with the people who who have them. And that's my, the art process to, to my eyes. It's the transmitting of the ability to be creative, not the object. But of course, it's a beautiful idea. <laughs> but as Frederick said before, we as artists, especially artists in the minorities, we also must, we are compelled to have a style. <laughs> mm. When I was a fashion photographer, they, my my clients or agents often told me, but you're doing so many things. What is your style? And I always replied to them, we could mention some very famous photographer. I don't want to spend 30 years doing the same picture with the same light. So I can do studio, I can do outdoors, I can do guys, I can do girls, I can do beauty, I can do fashion, whatever. But it is difficult for the public to, when they can't categorize, when you don't mm. allow them to categorize, they don't know what to do with it and they don't buy. So you don't eat or you don't pay your bills. <laughs> uh, I don't know you, but me, that was like that for many years. <laughs> so it is something that is also important to, to find like a, a middle way between this art for art whatever it means, process, the passing of creativity through the, the art and the, the objects, and the minimal recognition so that people can relate to what you do. And then, well, hopefully some of them, they, they feel more creative when they have your paintings, your carpets, your pictures, your lamps, whatever they do. What I try to transmit is the ability to pay attention to the process of living in a different way. And then, like, attract attention. Like, oh, this is something I, s I see every day, but I never saw it that way. And then when, when it is put on an object or printed somewhere or, or whatever, turned into an object, and people have that, it's working in them and their own way with their imagination and they become creative. Their way has nothing to do with me anymore. It's, it lives, it's free. And this is maybe the fluidity that I'm looking for in the art process.
this is so interesting. I think what you're talking about, uh, Manu, this always being like you, you you talked about before, always being in opposition, always belie- being in the fluid. And I think when Matt asked about the utopia of of, of queer art in the future, you know, I think it would be that normality in art would be actually breaking the boxes, taking people out of their comfort zone. What queer art often does, it it really breaks normality in such a way that a lot of people find it disturbing, also within the the, the queer community, because it's like an expectation there that in this space where you will find queer art, queer artists, you will find you are expected to be disturbed, to go out of there and and ask, "What? What the fuck hit me? I'm uh, I'm shaken. I'm I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand reality anymore. I don't understand myself. I need to sit down and question my concepts." I think that's the very best of what queer art can can bring to the table. But it's allowed. It's like in in uh, squats, you know that here you can. You can bring your own alcohol. You can smoke a joint inside. You know, you, you you can dress in whatever way you want. And I think queer art scene is a place where you can expect to be included, to say whatever you want, except from being racist. We have only excluded one person in Pride art history that started in '85, and that was a neo-Nazi girl that wanted to exhibit clearly Nazi-themed piece. I want to go back to something that was talked about before, which is just general sort of support funding. Specifically, I didn't, I was unaware of this like year of queer art coming up in Norway. I didn't know about that before now. I love that as a topic because what do you think as the people participating in the community about like, this is going to sound so bad. I'm going to go so much trouble. Okay. The, the fact that you even have like Pride Month or Pride Week or anything like that, that, you, that they've, they've designated that for you. And then, of course, they've come up with this now like, we're going to do like a Pride Year, queer art year. Like, how do you feel about the fact that there is sort of this, again, this sort of differentiated, this separated categorization that like, you all are so special. You need your own designated month that we will we will love you for that month, but we won't care about you the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, like this this upcoming queer art year, we will love you for twenty twenty two, but then we don't care about you in twenty twenty three. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> Frederick and I have been speaking a lot about this before. So yeah, yeah. I don't know where to start, but, but I think it is like. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it has been touched upon um, earlier in this conversation when I was talking about branding and how institutions want to sort of take our identity and put it on their brand, but only for a temporary time. I'm not happy about it. I can just be honest about that. I don't think Pride Month or Pride Week is enough because as we have seen in media for instance very early in july a 
homophobic murder happened in Spain. And there were only like some newspapers that mentioned it. And it was like not really mentioned that much. And nobody really talked about it. It was kind of just say, oh, yeah, no, that sucks kind of vibe to it. And, you know, we just had a month where you all had rainbows everywhere and saying, oh, we love gay people. We love queer people. We are going to be inclusive. You have a safe space here. And then as soon as July happens, I kind of hit sort of July blues, if that is a term we can make now, because it, it kind of feels like you're not anymore. We don't really care anymore unless it benefits us you're just weird and it's kind of the same thing as like women's national international day you know when every single man on my newsfeed are going to talk about how great women are and how much they care about women and yada 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 mm. and they might want to you know they might want to have females on podcasts and talking about female exclude excluding spaces but unless you are going to do that all year round pay me to participate, you know? Like, uh, I don't want to sit and be a token for someone else to look good in their portfolio. And if that's going to be my job, then I want to get paid for it, you know? Because that doesn't benefit me or my time if you're not going to do anything for me afterwards. If it's just going to make you look good. And that's kind of how I feel with the whole queer 2022, which is basically, I mean, that, the reason why we have that here, I don't know if that's been discussed, but that's because it was 50 years ago since the decriminalization of homosexuality. So that's why it's happening in 2022. But, you know, it's not like 50 years ago that law happened and every single queer person has just been included in society. And now they're just going to, like, make an anniversary for it. No, it's been still criminal stuff happening, still excluding so much wrong shit. And they just want to participate with us for that one year or that one month because it makes them look good. Yeah, but I wanted to say something about minority and majority. And you know, we are fighting to become accepted and included and represented, etc. But now when we have this queer culture year and Pride Month, etc., I start to feel that it's a little bit too much. The, the gay flag is everywhere. And now I start personally to feel the whole spirit of it is, is dissolving into something popular. And all my life I've been fighting, you know, fighting against oppression, fighting to be accepted. And we all want to be part of society included, but we also want to be special. We want to be together and we want to be separate. So this becomes very problematic when we are accepted when we are included society or, or, or our privileges will start to define us and make it difficult to speak up again so i've discovered that as a queer activist i'm starting to be to 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 feel that it's a lot of things i cannot say anymore because i don't want us to lose our privileges pride art started off as a as a little organization with 10, 20 artists. I remember when I started 15 years ago, we had 7,000 kroners. That's about 700 euros. 
budget. Now we have 100,000 euros and we are 140 artists. And last exhibition we have was visited by 25,000 people in 10 days, which in Norway is beyond com- comparison. You know, no exhibition is visited like that. So I'm wondering when is it too much acceptance, too much visibility? And we lose the privilege queer people have to speak up and say whatever the fuck we want, you know, because we are expected to be disturbing. And we are proud of that. I love the topic that you all brought up about tokenism, because like to a certain extent, I feel like those pride months, the, the, the women's days, the black history month in America, like all this. Kind of, I feel like they're just like. It's the white people in what white men, I'll be specific for you, gotcha. White men in power that are sort of just saying, like, oh, we'll, we'll do this token gestured thing to make it so that you feel like you're included, but we don't actually want to include you. Should we speak about the function of transgression in society? If we want to be transgressive, we can't be normal, but we need the normality to transgress. We or anyone else is normally this in anthropology is normally goes around the, the taboos or the, the, the social space for the, for the mad people in community. So transgression. But if there is nothing to transgress, if everything is accepted, there is no one to transgress. If there is no one anymore to transgress, then the society needs some someone else or another voice to say what's wrong. We'll invent a new thing that needs to be transgressed. It's human nature. Yeah, it's nature, not only human, I think. <laughs> Whatever it is. <laughs> but I, I think we have to deal with that that yo-yo thing between normality and queerness. We can't be forever categorized as queer and have a revendication to belong to the normality that we actually, we kind of refuse to because we like to be different. (laughs) We have to be aware that it's, we are sometimes here, sometimes there, and they're there. Also, if you're an activist, you need a fight. If you win your fight, you don't have a fight anymore. So if you want to stay an activist, but if you're an activist all your life long, you want to rest sometimes. Mm. I do. Yeah, good point. I would imagine it does get exhausting. Of course. Just period. Like, I mean, just continually having to fight for more whatever. Like, so whatever it is, like your entire, you know, your art, let's keep it with your art practice. Let's not worry mm-hmm. about our, our individual lives kind of yes. thing, but like you know, personal lives. But like in your art practice, it's, it, it's constantly a battle. I mean, it's hard enough. Like I'm, you know, as we've said already, I'm a white gen, you know, heterosexual man, but, and I'm fighting for acceptance as an artist period just mm. because i want to be accepted as an art but then to be part of the, again these other sort of subgroups kind of things is a even more difficult struggle mm. to find acceptance beyond that so like a we all want acceptance in the creative fields period but then to be able to find it within some sort of subgroup is even more difficult i imagine that's true but there's something in the art process that we often forget to mention there is this pressure to create because there is something that some 
a very strong emotion that we want to create to to that pushes us to create but there is also the the side of the the serenity part of it there are periods in in an artist's lifetime where the art is just serene and this is what we aim for not just always be hyper emotive and and create trashy stuff i mean fighting just like an activist rah, shouts what the, how bad we feel or whatever no sometimes we feel good and we want to share that too because it feels good and if we do that doesn't mean that we won't have another period with very high emotional thing it's just part of life both are part of life and both are part of the art and i think both arts are needed i think your question was if it's more difficult to be included in a subgroup in a way than uh, in uh, the general artistic scene Sure, we can go with that part of the question. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so I want to talk about Pride Art, that that group where many hundreds of artists have joined our exhibitions during the years. And what is special about our group is that we don't differ between an acknowledged professional artist and an amateur or a new beginner. So we make equal space for everyone who wants to participate and we don't curate that means we don't exclude anyone if you want to participate we make space for you which is quite challenging now since there's so many <laughs> and then what we see is in that space something very special happens because half of those who exhibit they wouldn't normally exhibit at all nowhere because they don't believe that their art is worth something or they don't have the personal ability to get all the way to public scene right? because they don't have the right resources you know the money contacts education etc so what is great about having a queer art scene is that we are very good at including each other and being what we call radical inclusion we go very far to help people get all the way to to the gallery both public uh, the public but also the artists so we see that half of the artists would normally never exhibit a couple of years later they have their own exhibitions and i think that art would never reach the public if we didn't have a special space like that and it's not only because it's for gay lesbian trans gender people but it's a space for people who who are actively opposing normality and and the conformity and also the political conformity and correctedness that you see a lot in queer right movement organizations hmm. this is the reason why I, i take part as you know frederick to to the pride art is really because there's this thing that goes beyond beyond the lgbtq thing beyond the 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 objects that we exhibit but that's as i say there is a passing of creativity and of a transmission of strength so that the people who take part to it once then they can go on by themselves more i just wanted to finish and say that i i find it very interesting that the space gathers a lot of people who become very colorful collective but what is equally interesting is that 
that the public, general public, who most of them are, are, are straight, or I don't know what to call people anymore, they come, <laughs> you know, and they, they are curious. So uh, yeah. I visited this gallery up north uh, in Norway. It's in Lofoten. You know Lofoten? I do. I'm going to go there next year. I'm going to visit. So there, in the very last island called Rest, it's 100 kilometers from, from the fastland. It's really next stop is Iceland. There you have 250 houses. That's all. So 500 people living there. And the only thing they do is to work with fish, the dry fish. And there I discovered one of our artists from Pride Art is living there. And he has this gallery. And from the outside, it looked like nothing. It was an old fish factory. or But then you enter the space and you immediately see that there's a queer person who has decorated this place. And there is a lot of his art. And on the wall, I, I got so shocked. It was this big picture of two men having anal sex. So one guy is riding the other guy's cock. Very explicit. And I just lost my breath. And I thought, you know, like, uh, I, it, we have to take that down. You know, if not, people will come kill us. You know, it's, it, but what, what I learned is that he hid this picture, but he had to put it up because the local community was so, they have heard about it and they wanted to see it. So people from all the Lofoot islands come to see this picture, straight people. And this kind of blew my mind. So I'm wondering if queer art is also important for the non-LGBT plus population to become more curious and experimental and talk more about all that crazy stuff that lives inside their minds that we don't talk about. I think that this conversation is so lovely. I think that what I want to sort of bring to the table is subversion because I think that instead of maybe talking about how queer people have all these boxes or how queer people are always different from the norm and how when we differ from the norm we need a norm to exist to to show that difference I think that what queerness can do is to almost reinforce society's structures of heteronormativity as well hmm. because when people who are not queer enter queer spaces they can still be able to identify with queer things or queer images or queer perspectives in ways that they might not have experienced before or thought about so i think that rather than fully disidentifying with the norm or rather than just conforming to the norm we are carving our own path that are inviting all kinds of people to explore more sides of themselves so they don't have to be so restricted into heteronormativity themselves either. And I think this conversation is kind of almost opening up that utopia that we discussed, that maybe that is the goal, rather than us fitting in with society, is society to actually expand itself so that it can be one thing, but it can also be several other things as well at the same time. Okay. Nothing <laughs> that's else that you, that's okay. Very much. Very well. It's, it's, it exactly seemed like that. there was more after that, that I was sort of waiting for something else. No, those were my thoughts. <laughs> okay, great.
All right. So this is getting very long at this point. So is there any topics that uh, that we haven't addressed that anybody would like to bring up before we sort of wrap this up? I wanted to say something historically that it's such a crazy experience to to be working with queer art and culture year in Norway when we know that in the late 80s they were debating if there was anything such as lesbian art, for example. They knew that there was gay art because we have seen gay men in some novels and some paintings before, you know. And then I remember this article in a queer, queer newspaper we had then that was called Dandelion. And the heading was, does lesbian art really exist? Uh, it seems so far away. No, but it, it it was the late eighties, and yeah, and I also wanted to say that in eighty five, when we had the the first openly gay art exhibition in Norway, it was very difficult to promote this exhibition because within the the queer community, they didn't want the exhibition because it was too daring. It showed drag queens, leather gay men, some other fetishes topics were portrayed and they, they they found it very disturbing you know within the community so it was this gay bar that was asked to put up a poster and they said no so i think we have come very far but we still have very long to go before even understanding i think what the utopia would be and things are not going the right way many places you know, when you ask, have we covered all the topics? We do not even know what the topics are yet, you know, because, <laughs> like I said before, are we talking about querying the art scene as a verb? Are we talking, what, what, the, what the hell is queer? You know, we don't know. But what we know is that it's about opening up boxes and challenging normality, whatever that is. So I'm, now I feel very confused after our talk, actually. I've never heard the the term queering as a verb. No. Um, could you maybe give a definition on that for me? Yeah, so it's definitely leaving the idea of queer art being art that is made by queer people or that has queer topics. It's more about challenging conformity to challenge the context we show queer art in. It's what Emmanuel talked about, the constantly challenging of definitions. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, what it reminds me of is like, you all keep mentioning the terms like normal society, this and all that. Yeah. I mean, who's to say if we didn't go back a couple hundred years or a couple centuries that that like technically normal might be being queer lgbtq whatever like but for some reason basically the bible took over and the patriarchy took over and so it just sort of became the cultural norm of this but maybe lgbtq is the correct way humans should be and just because of societal pressures and religion and other kinds of things that somehow heterosexuality became the the most dominant for, thing for a period of our history. But maybe there'll be a time in the future where that heterosexuality is the minority. Why not? Why not? I'm good with it. So then maybe querying will be, you know, trying to 
make space for for being heterosexual again. What we, uh, Katya, you know a lot about this concept, don't you? Queering. Could you help me define it? I think that you you define it very well, but my definition of queering would be to kind of like I said previously to maybe take a concept and show a new side of it mm. a queer side of it a an expand on that so you can have different perspectives in one mm. thing rather than just the straight or the normative quote unquote perspective that already exists that we kind of have as default mode that you can show that here's this thing but it can simultaneously be this as well and you might see it differently yeah bring back some life in the in in the thoughts in the arts in the, in our everyday life in the society allow it to move and to evolve because that's what we like mm. yeah all right any last thoughts advice input that you'd like to give go here we'll go around we'll start with emmanuel oh god i got no advice to anyone <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> Insight Just thoughts. Be queer. What did I write? Yeah. If we, uh, I wrote some paper. Yeah. For all the reasons, if we ever must be something to the eyes of our society, let's be queer. Not gay, not straight, not LGBT plus, no thing, no thing. Just queer. Weird, alien, something indefinable, an always evolving self <laughs> or society. I really have this experience of being confused now because it, when we started off, it seemed very clear and easy to talk about queer art. I've been busy with that for, you know, most of my time, the last decade. Now I'm wondering if there is anything at all called queer art and, and what is it. But what I know, you know, in my body is that there is something to fight for that there is oppression, there is violence. And I think art, to define art as queer, is important. Maybe in the future we'd not have to do that because we will be in a melting pot where it's not interesting anymore to talk about that. Nobody will be shocked or even you know, curious about it. It will just be normal. But for now, too many people suffer. We know that for sure. We have the numbers. so. I think we should make queer art exhibitions, uh, queer art groups, queer art, until we get sick of it. Because it has a great function. It will help people feel accepted, represented, give people faith, hope, and courage. You know, and art touches, as I said, in a much deeper way. And art makes change, social change. And we need social change when it comes to LGBT plus lives. I think there's been a lot of good things said already, but I would like to expand on everything said, like evolve, allow yourself to evolve, but also challenge yourself and challenge your own views and restrictions that you put onto other people. And use the privilege you have because there are a lot of privilege within the lgbtq community as well and help other people who 
don't have those privileges, seek out new voices within that community and listen to them and learn from them and change from them because we're all just evolving and changing. Okay. Lovely. Well, thank you all for your time. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for hosting us. And thank you, Matt, for, for you know, being so open about your position. You know, you are the real minority here. So I think it was very courageous of you. Ah. And especially since... Ah, I feel like I made such an ass out of myself. But yes. No, you will be even more queer by proxy now, I think. Honored. It's my honor. And I think it's, it was quite courageous because what we talk about a lot in, in the queer communities is that we don't want to be represented by the heterosexual white cis man especially you know so but we also want that you know we have to meet and we have to challenge each other and so thank you for inviting us and challenge yourself <laughs> and that's it i hope you are enjoying and learning from the podcast as much as i am I've learned about many things I did wrong in my career and many things I need to put more effort into in the future. I hope this podcast has inspired and assisted you in being more successful in your creative endeavors. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. I would like to thank Conceptual Citizen for their five-star rating. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Jakub Czerny, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes, or you can find more information on Instagram at thewisefoolpod, or on our website, which is simply wisefoolpod.com.